Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, Heavenly Father, we just pray for your help tonight. We pray that you would indeed speak to us powerfully through the, the scriptures we've had read to us and now we're going to be looking at again. We pray that you give us great clarity of mind to see clearly uh, what is there. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do sit down as you're sitting down. If you could be turning back in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 7. We're actually going to be looking at the, the middle of that section that was read to us. We're going to be looking at the section that runs from verse uh, 15 through to the 23 of chapter 7. And you can find that on page 972. Also, in amongst the pieces of paper you were given on the way in, uh, there's an outline that you can use to, to follow, on, follow uh, what's going on, uh, or to make a few notes on. There's an old adventure film from 1957 called uh, Northwest Frontier. So some of you may remember it. Some of you may remember it coming out for the first time, perhaps. Uh, Lauren Bacall. Kenneth Moore, Herbert Lom, some great names from British cinematic history. And this film was on uh, the TV almost all the time uh, when I was growing up. So very regularly at Christmas time, I got, got, got to get very fond of it. It was about a rebellion in the northwest frontier province of British India in 1905. And a British army officer has to help an Indian prince to escape to safety, which he does so in an old train as they escape attack after attack from the enemies outside the train, it soon becomes apparent that there is a traitor on the inside of the train, one of their party, who is intent on killing the prince and intent on wrecking the rescue mission. I guess that's a scenario that's been reproduced upon th- across thousands and thousands of similar ad- adventure stories. You can probably think of a number yourselves just as you sit there now. And I suppose we might get a little bored of that idea. Until, that is, we find ourselves in such an adventure. And that's where we are tonight in Matthew chapter 7. I want you to stretch your imagination a little and imagine this church building uh, as uh, like that railway carriage in the film. And we're like those characters attempting to escape to safety together. Stretch your imagination again. It's hot and it's humid. It's tense and uncomfortable. The seats are hard and wooden. Okay, not so much imagination uh, needed for some of us there. But what we're going to see tonight is that just like the characters in that film, we need to be vigilant in that kind of situation. We need to watch out for people in our midst or people who might influence us, who are potentially harmful to the mission that we're on. You see, we've been seeing week by week as we've been looking through these chapters of Matthew's Gospel, that we are likewise on a rescue mission as a church family. It's the rescue mission that we read about right at the end of Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 28. It's the rescue mission, if you remember, of making disciples of Jesus in every nation. It's a mission that's made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus as uh, we benefit from his uh, servant work, and uh, we benefit from that, and we take out the life-transforming salvation that he's won for us. And it's as that mission begins that this teaching in Matthew 
5 through to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, it kicks into action. And it's warning us here that it may yet be derailed, this mission, if we take our eyes off Jesus. If we were to do that, if we were to take our eyes off Jesus and his teaching, then we might well go off the rails down that spacious embankment to destruction. Now, last time we were looking at uh, chapter 7 and verses uh, 13 and uh, 14, thinking about the external danger. You might remember there are two ways, two paths. And Jesus said, beware of following others, beware of following the crowd, if you like, down that spacious path to destruction. But this time he's going to warn us about something uh, that's more like an internal danger. This time we need to beware of being uh, deceived down that spacious path. There will be people, warns Jesus, who wittingly or unwittingly will be working to drag you in the wrong direction. Now, I put on the handout a summary of uh, what I hope we're going to hear from Jesus tonight. I hope we're going to hear him saying, beware, watch out, watch out in particular for deceivers, watch out for hidden false prophets. How? By testing people's words and deeds and asking, are they aligned with the will of God? And I'm just going to divide that summary into three parts and look at them each in turn. Uh, So first of all, let's look at the basic warning, the basic warning uh, that Jesus is giving us here. Watch out for hidden false prophets. Watch out for hidden false prophets. You can see the warning for yourself. It's there in verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly. They are ferocious wolves. Now, this is obviously uh, very serious, so we need to be sure that we understand every part of what Jesus says here. A prophet, to begin with, is someone who speaks for God or who passes on truths that that God wants to be passed on. We might think uh, first, I guess, of teachers or or leaders within uh, a church family, and that's that's right to think of them, of course. Uh, But do remember also that in the New Testament era that we are part of, all God's people become prophets uh, in some way to take the gospel to the world. So potentially this applies to all of us. It applies across all of us. A false prophet is obviously someone who claims to speak for God, but doesn't. Someone who passes on a message which God doesn't want to be passed on, which is, so to speak, against his will. In other words, something which deviates from what we have here in the, in the Bible, which is, the, of course, the perfect expression of God's will. In other words, false prophecy is another form of hypocrisy. We've come across hypocrisy before in the Sermon on the Mount. It's play-acting. Like other hypocrites, false prophets may be consciously putting on an act. They may be deliberately malicious. But also, like other hypocrites, they may also be self-deceived. They may believe themselves sincere and come across as sincere to others. Indeed, this is the more dangerous possibility, and a very real one, as we'll see shortly. And Jesus says here that these false prophets come to us in sheep's clothing. Throughout the Bible, you will know that sheep are a way of describing God's people. And these people look like sheep. But underneath, says Jesus, they are ferocious, greedy wolves. 
Now, wolves were much more widespread in the ancient world than they are today, uh, putting animals like uh, sheep and goats at severe risk, even in places like uh, Palestine. If you read, and if you've read uh, Jack London's um, famous book, White Fang, or seen the recent Liam Neeson film, Grey, you'll know just how ferocious and dangerous and destructive wolves can be. The instinct of the wolf is to tear animals like sheep into tiny pieces. In other words, this is not a minor problem that Jesus is talking about here. And of course, the wolf in sheep's clothing is doubly dangerous, not only destructive, but relatively hidden. You don't have to read very far in the New Testament to realize that false prophecy was a massive issue for the early church. It's pretty much there on every page in in Matthew's gospel and beyond. So I guess this is the first thing to note carefully from Jesus' teaching here. His disciples are potentially at any time in severe danger from false prophecy. It is destructive. It is potentially fatal. So listen to Jesus warning us. Watch out. Beware. Pay attention. Take heed. I guess it's always remarkable uh, when we find out that there's more to someone than meets the eye. You might discover that your quiet neighbor is a war hero, for example, or that your friend once saved someone's life, or that the lovely-looking gray-haired lady sitting next to you now once won an Olympic medal, perhaps. Or more worryingly, that your quiet neighbor is actually a professional thief, that your friend once killed someone in anger, that the gentle gray-haired lady sitting next to you now is actually the head of an international crime syndicate. Stop staring at her. It's all right, Philip, I'm sure she's not. Jesus is saying to us tonight, don't be deceived by any of that. Don't be deceived by appearances. The person who looks like a sheep might be a wolf, might be a wolf. And if they are, and you listen to them, and you follow them, then you might be heading into extreme danger. Okay, so hopefully we're awake now. We've heard the alarm bell, as it were. And the next question, of course, is what do we do about it? How do we watch out? Well, this is what Jesus teaches us next. Watch out for false prophets, says Jesus, by testing what they say and do. This is the second main point, by testing people's words and deeds. The basic principle, you can see it for yourself in verse 16, by their fruits, you will recognize them. The principle is this, says Jesus, you test what kind of tree someone is by identifying the fruits. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruits, but a bad tree bears bad fruits. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Now, I have to admit that I'm no expert at gardening, but even I can understand this, I think. Even I can see that you can't expect a bumper crop of figs from a field of thorns. Even I can see that healthy apple trees will, should produce good apples, but the fruit from diseased trees will have to be chucked away, and perhaps the trees destroyed before the disease spreads. I guess it's really sim- uh, f- relatively simple, isn't it? If someone's a true prophet, believing the truth, 
following Jesus, dependent on their Father in heaven, then that will show itself. The way that their heart has been transformed will overflow. It will show first in what they say. There's going to be people who speak the truth in love. It will also show in their desire to honor their Father in heaven and and in the love that they show to their brothers and sisters. A person who's been touched by the gospel of Jesus speaks gospel words and leads a gospel life. But if someone is a false prophet, believing lies, then that will also eventually show itself too. It will show first in them speaking the lies that they believe. And then it will show in lawlessness and hatred. In other words, the fruit is revealing in advance their fate on the final day of judgment, the day when, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's the direction that they will be dragging people who listen to them or follow them. Thus, you must recognize them, says Jesus. Uh, Now, Catherine, who knows much more about gardening than I do, tells me that some plants are indeed hard to tell from others. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, all plants are hard to tell from one another. But in some cases, even the experts, it would seem, have trouble You have to wait until the fruit or the flowers appear before it becomes clear precisely what they are. You may think you've got a nice patch of morning glory ready to brighten up one of your beds. But when the flowers appear, it turns out to be the notorious bindweed. And you have a real task on your hands to root it up and burn it up. By their fruit, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And remember, fruit is not just practical behavior. It's not just doing stuff. And I think this is something that I've perhaps missed from this passage in the past. It covers words and teaching too. In fact, because Jesus is talking about prophecy here, the emphasis may well be on what people say and on what they teach. But before we can think in a little bit more detail about this, there's one more further warning from Jesus for us to consider. You see, it would seem that not all apparently good words and deeds pass the test. There is a particular question that we need to ask. There is an urgent question that we need to ask. We watch out for false prophets, yes, by testing what people say and do. And that means, lastly, finally, asking, are they aligned with the will of God? Are they aligned with the will of God? This is the key question that we need to be asking. Here's the, and here's the reason for asking that question, reading from verse 21. You see, says Jesus, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, you lawbreakers. I can see this is about what happens on verse 22 
that day. In other words, Jesus is taking us forward to the day of judgment, the day when all these things will finally be exposed for what they are, the day when some will find life and the kingdom of the heavens, and some will find destruction. And on that day, some words, even if apparently good, apparently clear, will not be enough. You can say to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord, and verse 21, still not enter the kingdom of the heavens. You can say to him that you prophesied in his name, verse 22, and it may not be enough. And on that day, some deeds, even if spectacular, will not be enough. You can point out that you've cast out demons and performed great miracles, making people go ooh and ah with amazement. And still you hear those chilling words from Jesus. I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer, you lawbreaker. Now, the only question that matters on that day is there in verse 22. Have you been brought into line with the will of the Father by Jesus through his death and resurrection and then staying in line with that in what you say and do? I think this uh, must rank as one of the most terrifying pictures of the day of judgment in the Bible. It's not just the implied destruction that people are going to face on that day. It's the apparent sense of surprise with which some come to Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, but are then sent away. It confirms what we suspected earlier, that some may be false prophets without being fully conscious or aware of it, it would seem. It should be enough to send a shiver down our spines, shouldn't it? As a teacher in this church family, it certainly does that, to, does that to me. All of which should make us doubly eager to make sure that we understand what it means to live in line with the will of the Father. We need to check, be able to check people out the right way. What's more, it would seem we need to check ourselves out. Because remember, we're all prophets now, and the very best way uh, to know to, and to be sure what it means to live in line with the will of the Father is simply to go back over what Jesus has told us about that. After all, that is, in many ways, what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, living in line with the Father's desire and determination to to bring about his plans and purposes for the world through Jesus Christ. Uh, So let's do that right now, in fact. Let's just turn back briefly uh, to earlier. So beginning with chapter 5, let's begin with the Beatitudes. We've been coming back here time and time again each week. And it's a great place to start. And let's ask with these beatitudes in front of us. This is chapter 5, verses 3 through to 10. With these in front of us, what are the characteristics of a false prophet, of someone out of line with the will of God? Well, of course, it's going to be the opposite of all those things which receive God's favor in those verses. So look at the first few of them, for example, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those hungering for righteousness, says Jesus. So the person who is the opposite, the person who is proud, the person who is self-sufficient, self-promoting, 
flippant in their behavior. These are bad symptoms. Don't condemn, says Jesus. It's not your place to condemn. We heard that a few weeks ago. But do be wary. Be cautious. Or looking on through to verses 7 through 10. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Those who are ready to be persecuted because of Jesus. So the one who is judgmental or unforgiving. Whose heart shows itself as corrupt. Who is factious, difficult, angry. Who compromises on the truth to avoid persecution. Those are bad symptoms. Don't condemn, says Jesus, but do be wary. Be cautious. Or or think about the the teaching which Jesus corrects later in chapter 5. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees have been, if you remember, teaching a skin-deep understanding of of obedience and love. Teaching that, that doesn't really get very far down, doesn't address the heart. They are people who have ignored the authority of Jesus and his teaching. They are stubbornly unteachable. That's going to be one of the marks of a false prophet. Stubbornly unteachable. These are all bad symptoms. Don't condemn, says Jesus. It's not your place to condemn, but do be wary. Be cautious. Or moving to chapter 6 and beyond, think about the hypocrites who do everything for show and self-promotion. They store up for themselves treasure on earth and not in heaven. They are judgmental. They are prayerless. They are loveless. These are all bad symptoms. Don't condemn, says Jesus, but do be wary. Be cautious of such people. In other words, with the Sermon on the Mount in front of us, we do, in fact, have the perfect tool for identifying bad fruit and false prophecy today. And what we have here will, of course, expose very quickly uh, some of the more extreme examples we might come across. I think of a man who used to preach near where we used to live in London, who appointed himself an archbishop of his own denomination. It's already not a good start, is it? You know, you set up a new denomination and think, oh, I think I'll be archbishop. His publicity has him standing in front of an executive jet promising health and happiness in return for prayer and donations. His major claim to fame was his healing powers and especially his power to summon miracle babies and infertile women. Turns out that he and his wife have been under investigation for child theft and are about to be extradited to Kenya. I think he uh, ticks pretty much every box on the danger symptoms we've just been looking at, does he not? Some of them several times over. Let's gradually move closer to home. And there may be some who think it's bad form to say this, but Jesus is teaching here that it's not enough to merely be an ordained clergyman or a consecrated bishop to be trustworthy. For example, let me tell you about one Anglican bishop. He visited us when we were at um, theological college. He boldly declared that his role in the diocese, his role in the diocese was to be the focus of unity in the diocese. But of course, there is only one focus of unity in the Christian church, and he is Jesus Christ. 
The same bishop failed to defend the kind of standards we've been seeing in the Sermon on the Mount. Acted against people reaching out with the gospel, people being light in the world. Then he got himself into a very public scandal about being drunk in public. But he often spoke on thought for the day. And I suspect if he were to come uh, to speak here, I can imagine people saying, what, wasn't the bishop lovely? Wasn't the bishop just lovely? But holy orders, charm and sincerity are not enough, says Jesus. Indeed, we might say that the most charming and sincere false prophets are also the most dangerous ones. So we've got to be careful. We've got to be discerning. It's no good, for example, wandering about from church to church, as I hear some people doing, uncritically drinking in all kinds of teaching, supposing there must be good in all of it somewhere. Sooner or later, you will find yourself drinking poison. And we've got to keep one another accountable on this, haven't we? How do we do that? Well, basically, it means having our Bibles open and our eyes down. It means having this, the expression of God's will, at our fingertips. So test your leaders and teachers. Watch their words and lives against this standard. That's why, for example, I've encouraged you to have your Bibles open here tonight so that you can check for yourselves what I'm saying. But also remember, we're all prophets now. From casual conversations that we might be having later to more formal Bible study kind of situations, we need to keep one another accountable right across the church family. And of course, we also need to test ourselves, as the Apostle Paul puts it. We should pay close attention to our own lives and teaching. So I have to say that over this last week, I have found this deeply challenging, troubling even. I think in my own life and teaching, relative to the standards of, on, in the Sermon on the Mount, and it is very, very humbling, I can assure you. And I know very well that the only way that I can be doing this and standing up in front of you now and speaking to you like this is as I cling desperately to the mercy and help of Jesus. Uh, But as we finish tonight, let me stress one very, very important thing. Let me stress that this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that our lives need be paralyzed by fear and paranoia. Uh, So remember the adventure story I began with, that hot, sweaty railway carriage in India, profoundly tense because everyone knows that there's a traitor there, but nobody knows who it is. Well, our rescue mission doesn't have to be like that. We don't need to spend all of our times thinking about this, setting up inquisitions or, or witch hunts. Quite rightly, There is no secret doctrine committee here at Forward. And we don't need to set one up, deciding the forward line on every issue and sending out the heavies in the middle of the night uh, for every deviation. Such things would be against Jesus' teaching. So we don't cry wolf 
with no good reason, and we don't act judgmentally. Remember, we are talking about wolves here. We're not talking about the merely confused or incompetent. And the last thing we should do is start playing the judge. We heard from Jesus a few weeks ago just how dangerous that can be. So yes, there might have to be church discipline in some cases. Jesus does go on to talk about that later in the Gospel of Matthew. And yes, we might want to warn people on some occasions. But Jesus certainly doesn't want us to stew in an atmosphere of suspicion and paranoia. The basic idea is just to be vigilant, to be careful, to watch out. Now you may know that in the first of the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus commends the church in Ephesus because they cannot tolerate wicked men and had tested people who claimed to be apostles and they tested them and found them false. And I suppose those people in Ephesus might have said that they were trying to put this teaching, put Jesus' teaching on false prophets into practice. But then Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them for having lost the love they had at first. It seems that the pursuit of falsehood had hardened them. And the irony was that their lack of love put them just as much at odds with the will of God, in just as much danger as those they had tested and found wanting. So yes, we do want this church family to have an atmosphere of vigilance, watching words and deeds carefully, but one that does that out of humility and love, because we know the damage wolves inflict on sheep. And for that, we need an atmosphere of the right kind of trust, trust in our Father, trust in Jesus, an atmosphere where we breathe the Bible all the time, but also live the Bible all the time, an atmosphere where our humble dependence on the servant work of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the love of the Father, where all of these things flow out in love. Because it's in an atmosphere like that that both false teaching and false living will stick out. They'll stick out like a sore thumb. And in such an atmosphere, disguises will fail. And wolves will fear to tread. Well, let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, we confess that uh, we are humbled and perhaps even slightly shaken by this teaching and especially of that vision of the last day and those coming to you saying lord lord but then you saying that you never knew them we pray for the right response to that which is to come to you now in humility to be served by you i pray for anyone here tonight who needs to do that urgently for them to do it right now and we do want to pray for that atmosphere that comes from changed hearts, the atmosphere that is focused upon you and the will of the Father, an atmosphere of love and trust in you, 
an atmosphere where falseness and hypocrisy shows up clearly. Please grant that to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.